Zephaniah chapter 3. So Zephaniah, as I preached last week when we started this book, is a prophetic book in the Old Covenant Scriptures. It was written during a unique period of time. So Zephaniah was a prophet, not a king. He was a, he was a prophet, but his great, 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 I think it was four up, grandfather was the king of Judah. And Zephaniah descends from the line of one son, the oldest son's sons, produced King Josiah, who was a contemporary of Zephaniah. So these distant cousins, one the king, one the prophet, were on the scene during a period of abysmal spiritual apathy. King Josiah, his fourth cousin, or whatever he might have been, was put on the throne very young. And during his reign, while they were cleaning out the temple, preparing for a garage sale or something like that, they discovered the word of God. Now, what that tells us is that religious activity was going on, but the word of God was not being preached. Can you imagine that? You should be able to imagine it because it takes place in a lot of churches today. Religious activity is going on, a liturgy is being run, communion biscuits are being handed out, but the word of God is not being preached. It's actually been forgotten. So Josiah responds to that, and he ultimately brings about, in his 36 short years, radical reform over the nation of Judah, the southern tribes of Israel. But just prior to that, Zephaniah was a prophet sent by God to stir the hearts and to inform the minds of God's people. And he, like many prophets, speaks of the pending day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to God's ultimate future cataclysmic judgment over unrighteousness and his redemption of those who have obeyed him and surrendered themselves to him. So this is the context of Zephaniah. And we are going to study together chapter 3. I'm going to give it to you in one sentence. This is kind of the, the theme of Zephaniah. And then we'll enter into the text together. I would suggest to you that Zephaniah is essentially about this. It's about failures exposed so that unfailing love might be experienced. God very clearly challenges and confronts his people as to their failures. But he does not do that to crush and leave crushed. He does that to crush in order that he might restore and rebuild. He doesn't do that like a, a mean parent might do or a vindictive teacher might do if they were to fail you just because they don't like you or they hate your gut. So they, they want you to fail. That's not why God confronts and challenges us. God will never let us get away with sin. He will never allow us to continue to rob him of glory. He'll never give sin a pass. But at the same time, he has a very big heart, a very tender heart. We're going to see this in the passage for sinful people. And if we respond to him, identify our sin, admit it, repent of it, and turn away from it, we will encounter something truly amazing, the unfailing love of God. It it exceeds any love that you've ever experienced from anyone else. And it is something very much worth pursuing. Maybe you, in your place of employment, if you have a job, 
are subject to an annual review. So you're brought in and they evaluate your performance. And why do they do that? Part of it is for your benefit so you can function more accurately and productively. But part of it is also to guard the employer, to make sure that their product or their services aren't being hindered by your lack of performance. So both the employer and the employee benefit. And as God confronts us in this text, we will benefit from it, but God will also benefit because God will receive the glory that he is rightly due. So let me read for you the first four verses. And what we're seeing here is God exposing our failure. So the first thing we see, we see a a discussion about human failings. And we need to hear these things and we need to assess our own lives to see if they're present as we read them from the word of God. The Bible says, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. He's speaking particularly here to the city of Jerusalem, which was supposed to be kind of a holy city, a place where God's presence was manifested in an extra special way. But she had become rebellious and defiled. How so? Here's some marks of rebellion and defilement. First one is this. She listens to no voice and accepts no correction. Could that be you? The second one is she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Could that be you? Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. If you're an officer of the court, if you're a citizen of Canada committed to justice, do you stand for justice? The fourth one is, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. If you're a leader among God's people, are you committed to holiness? These are four fails that God gives to his people. Give us our report card, Lord. How do we do? You failed, you failed again, you failed again, and you failed again. You failed four times. So if you have an interest in ruining your home, destroying your marriage, ruining your church, or ruining your nation, here are four things that you would want to include in your life. And the first one is, what is it? It's ignorance. The text says she listens To no voice, she accepts no correction. You know, there's a lot of um, self-governing, autonomous Christians today. They don't read the word of God. They have a preconceived notion of what the Bible says. They won't submit to authority. God-given authority. They won't submit to elder authority, pastoral authority. They jump from church to church. They do what they want. They march to the beat of their own drum. They don't listen. They will not receive correction. These are not the marks of godliness. Let's not overplay the personal relationship with God card. We are called into a community. And in that community, you don't get to march to the beat of your own drum. Together, we surrender ourselves to the authority of God's word. 
And in the authority of God's word, God speaks about authoritative figures that God has placed over marriages, churches, societies, governments. It's not every man for himself. One of the marks of Judah evidently was an ignorance. They don't want to hear truth. They don't want to be corrected. I guess they considered themselves know-it-alls, and God challenges them in this way. The second fail is in the area of independence. You know, when you are a child, you're highly dependent upon your parents. And then as you become an adult, one of the marks of adulthood is, is a certain measure of, depend, of, of independence. You manage your own funds. You manage your own marriage. If you're married, you manage your own children. You're responsible to get out of bed and get to work. If your car breaks down, you got to deal with it. You become independent, but the opposite is true of our relationship with God. We start off independent from God, and as we mature and grow, we must become increasingly dependent upon God, reliant upon God. That's not the case with Judah here. God says she does not not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Did you know that Christians are called to believe the right things, but we're also called to follow Jesus himself. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm a biblical Christian because I believe the right things. In our church, we talk about the need for a disciple to worship Christ. That's the first one. The third one is to work for Christ. We serve and use our time, talents, and treasures for the purpose of his kingdom. But in the middle, we have this very, very important one. We are to walk with Christ. Walking with Christ is drawing close to the Lord, exercising dependence upon him, trusting in him, relying upon his promises and his pronouncements every day. Evidently, the people of God can easily drift away from that and they become independent rather than dependent upon the Lord. The third fail is in the area of injustice. The text tells us her judges are evening wolves. Now, Wolves are a majestic animal, but they're a carnivore. They eat other things. Here, God is chastising the judicial system of Israel. Like when push comes to shove and someone's being mistreated, what do you fall back on? You fall back on a righteous judicial system. Police officers, judges, courts, juries that are going to defend the cause, the causes of the, those that have been violated those, those that have been cast aside. I mean, if, if, if the justice system fails, what else do you have left? But God's looking at his own people and he's like, your judges are like evening wolves. They don't shepherd and guide, they devour and destroy. Now this kind of rattles my cage a little bit because I'm seeing this in increasing measure in my own country. Where we have courts that are siding with sinful behavior, upholding sinful behavior, or refusing to pass laws to curb sinful behavior. Behavior that is not just morally wrong, but it's destructive. It's destroying people's lives. God calls people out on this. And then there's a fourth fail, incompetence on the level of leadership. The prophets are fickle. Fickle is kind of an interesting word, isn't it? It means you're, you're constantly changing. 
you're not principled. You're probably a pragmatist. You're not anchored in some unchanging truth. You're, you're pulled back and forth depending on the culture, the circumstances, what's popular, what's unpopular. And because the clergy, as we would call them in our context, were also responsible to govern the people civilly under the theocratic nation of Judah, God challenges their, their leaders. He says, your prophets are fickle, treacherous men, her priests profane what is holy. Talk about an irony. Men that are supposed to stand for righteousness are, are profaning, destroying that which is holy. God challenges the people of Israel in these four areas. And let's not just leave this as a study and what happened then. Let's ask ourselves some questions about now. Could these things be present in your life? Could they be present in your family? Are you a person that champions listening? You listen, you're willing to be corrected. Are you trusting in the Lord, drawing close to him, walking with him, abiding with him? Are you committed to justice? You may not be in a position of jurisprudence. You may not be a court officer. But we have something in our country called free speech. And we can speak out against injustice. We can stand for the causes of the oppressed. We can stand for the unborn, the widow, the orphan, the sick, the lame. We can stand. We can say something. We can act to assist. And are we committed to holiness, especially those of you that are in positions of authority and leadership? Are you leading well? Are you leading humbly before the Lord? So right out of the gates, God exposes us to our failures. The second thing we are exposed to is God, the character of God, the righteousness of God. God confronts us. Why? Because of who he is. And because of what we've done, not just because of what we've done, but he also confronts us because of who he is. In the text, we shall see that God is concerned with correcting false behavior, but God is, he's also concerned about himself and he's allowed to be, he's God. So in contrast to human failure, the Bible says about God, verse five, the Lord within her is righteous. God doesn't just act righteously. God is intrinsically, ontologically righteous. God is the epitome of righteousness, the manifestation of righteousness. And because he is righteous and never fails and never sins, he acts righteously. The text goes on to say he does no injustice. Is he pretty consistent about that? Yeah, he's pretty consistent. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But again, in contrast to God, the Bible says, but the unjust knows no shame. Little parenting tip. Your job as a parent is not just to correct the behavior of your children. It's also to parent in such a way that they have a respect for the office that you hold the office of a parent. The Bible talks of honoring your father and your mother. One day they might be fathers and mothers. Society is largely built on people respecting proper 
authoritative roles. It's not anarchy. It's not every person for themselves. So as you parent your children, it's not a selfish thing, but you are both correcting behavior, but you're also guarding the office or the position or the role that God has entrusted you to. And in the same way, God corrects our behavior, but he's also very much concerned with guarding his rightful role as our sovereign ruler. And he won't allow us to get away with defaming him. So here we have our failure exposed, but then we are reminded of the absolute perfection of God. That is contrasted with the shamelessness of humanity. We are seeing this in increasing measure, brothers and sisters, in our own country. People have always sinned. They've sinned since the beginning of time. But in the Western world, largely due to the positive influence of the church and the preaching of God's word, which has very much influenced Western culture, There were certain sins that if you committed them like 50 years ago, you certainly wouldn't tell anybody. You wouldn't tweet them out. You wouldn't march for them in the streets. You would keep them private. But it's a very different world, isn't it? Where the most perverted, the darkest, most sinister, most gross and disgusting sins are pridefully promoted in the public realm and defended and taught to the smallest of our children in our public schools. I feel for those of you that signed up to be teachers 20 or 30 years ago and now all this godlessness is being foisted upon you and you're expected to teach There's no kinder word for it than absolute garbage and destruction to our children. Well, God prophesies and predicts that that happens in contrast to the sacred holiness of God. We have the most shameful deeds being pridefully promoted and championed in our own country. And there's no shame in that. And even Leaders break laws. Those that are supposed to uphold laws and defend justice, righteousness, are breaking the laws of God. But God reminds us, God never breaks his law. How often does he show his justice? Every day. Does he ever fail? No, he never, ever fails. Praise God for that. So we have an exposure to human failure. Then we have an exposure to God. The next step the prophet leads us to is an exposure to the consequences of our sin. We need to know about that. What are the consequences of our sin? Here's God's consequences as he speaks about the coming, the pending day of the Lord, his ultimate judgment. He says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. There are a lot of nations going around. Some rightfully. Some naively boasting about their military prowess. This thing going on right now between the United States and Iran, I have an opinion on that. I won't share it publicly. 
But I'll say this, if you listen to the rhetoric, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, bigger armies. We can beat you. No, we can beat you. And You know, you can have the biggest army in the world. You can be the toughest dude that's ever lived. If you don't love the Lord, if you don't follow the Lord, guess who wins in the end? God wins in the end. God will take all nations, any nation that has stood in opposition to him. Look what it says. Cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. There's no exceptions to that. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have become desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Now, I would say that's pretty hard truth. Would you agree? Pretty hard truth. God's called us out. He's reminded of his, of his holiness. And he's taught us about the consequences. And they're not, they're not to be scoffed at. But you might ask the question, why? Like, why does God judge sin so harshly? Why, why is God so bent on destroying wickedness? Okay, now we start to see glimpses into the purposes of God, the tender heart of God. Let's read on. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. So we have this insight into God. God corrects with a desire to bring about reform in our lives, in our churches, in our nations. He desires to bring about reform. However, (laughs) here's what human beings are like. Here's how we respond. Second part of verse 7. But all the more they were, what's the next word? Eager to make all their deeds corrupt. That word eager says a whole lot about the despicable nature of broken humanity. We have a problem. It's not just a little sickness we have. We have a terminal disease. It's called sin. We rebel against God and we want to. You know what it's like? Apart from Christ, you want to sin. It's empty. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. It destroys relationships. It drags you down. But you want to sin. You desire to sin. Is there consequences to it? Yes. Can you get trapped in those consequences and regret them? Yes. Can you become addicted and wish you could get out? Yes. But we have this eagerness towards sin. Yesterday, a brother and I in the church were talking in between services. I don't remember all the the language, but we're listening. We both happened to hear the same commercial on television from the Michigan Health Board, and it was talking about opioid addiction, and it says it's it's not, we shouldn't call it opioid opioid. Uh, addiction, we should call it opioid use disorder. And it's, they, they went on to say, it's not a choice, it's a medical condition. Well, obviously it has medical implications. 
And once you're in, it can be a difficult thing to get out of. But why, why do we have this incessant desire to, 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 to rid ourselves of responsibility or consequences and to constantly frame ourselves up as the victims? Okay, we were the ones that caused the brokenness in our world. We were the ones. Like, well, well, but it's been going on for, for all of time. Yeah, but everybody that's alive right now on planet Earth, I don't think there's anybody alive on planet Earth right now that was born in the 1800s. So we're all born in the 1900s or the 2000s. Everybody that's, respon- everybody that's alive on the world right now is responsible for every sin that's currently being committed. You can't just blame it on your great-great-granddaddy. After all, that gets a little old. We have an eagerness and a desire for sin, even though God's desire is that we might repent and turn to him. So God says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. This is verse 8. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms. Notice his sovereignty. He's collecting up kingdoms to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. God is jealous because he's the ultimate offended one. We have here cycles. We see them in our own lives, in Israel, judgment, God's desire for restoration. Sometimes the people do buckle and repent. And they're doing well. And then they drift again. It goes round and round and round. But God's word here is that ultimately if there's no response, the day of the Lord is coming. It's not going to be good. And I will defend my holiness at all costs. Exposure to human failure. Exposure to the perfection of God. Exposure to the consequences of continued rebellion to God. But here's where we turn a corner. The fourth thing we see in this text is we have this beautiful exposure to the unfailing, pursuing, active, sovereign love of God. We can praise the Lord for this. Look at what the text says beginning with verse 9. In the midst of this judgment, God says, for at that time, I will change. I will means God will initiate it. God is an initiating God. His love is initiating. His electing purposes are initiating. His forgiveness is initiating. Our salvation is initiating. God initiates. He challenges. He confronts. We're eager for sin. So God's like, because I love you, I'm going to chase you down, and I'm going to turn you around. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. No more blasphemy, no more self-aggrandizement, no more bragging, no more gossip, no more slander, no more stupid words. I will change my people. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. And here's how that change will ultimately be manifested in worship. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Notice here this truth that we often emphasize the mission of God is the glory of God. Where do we get that 
theological point from passages like this. God redeems us. Why? So that he might be worshiped. And then at one accord, the nations might worship the Lord and they will. In the midst of the indignation, we have a promise of restoration. God does what we are unwilling to do. God wills that which we are unwilling to do. And he does so because he loves us and he loves himself. So his love here is expansive. In the end, the globe will glorify God. This would have been radical information for an old covenant believer to receive. We're a little more used to it because we're new covenant believers and we know about the great commission and God's desire to bring people from all nations to himself. But this would have been pretty radical. And in all of this, God is very clear. He's going to change us from corrupt speech to pure speech. What kind of speech? The kind of speech which exalts God. How far is this going to extend? Look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush. So he's speaking to people in Jerusalem. And he's like, I'm going to, the nations are going to turn to me. How far? From beyond the rivers of Cush. You're like, well, how far is Jerusalem to Cush? It's farther from Jerusalem to Cush than it is from Windsor to Victoria, British Columbia. Now, that's a long way. But you could fly there in, what, five or six hours or something like that? They didn't have airplanes and high-speed trains when this prophecy was given. You might as well have said, from here to Timbuktu. A long, 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 long way away, God's declaring his global sovereign rule over all the nations. How far is his redemptive purpose going to reach? From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And then we have, I would say, a couple of the most beautiful, soothing, kind of shocking verses in all of the Old Testament. Beautiful verses. Having been exposed to our sin and God's perfection and the consequences of sin, God speaking about his future plan says, and on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty, meaning prideful, in my holy mountain. A reference to Jerusalem. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. It's like, did I miss something? Was there like an episode that took place in here where everybody got together and decided that they were going to clean up their acts and live righteously? No, you didn't miss anything. It goes from sin, being confronted by God, reminders of God's holiness, reminders of the consequences, and there's nothing else taking place. It just goes to God sovereignly reaches out and chooses to extend his unfailing love to people from all over the world, not deserved, not earned, not merited, 
It's a gift of God. And it's a beautiful gift. Look again at verse 11. You will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So he's targeting sinners. Not the righteous. He's targeting people who have rebelled against him. He's like, I'm not going to put you to shame, even though your acts are shameful. I'm going to redeem you and bring you to myself. And it just gets better from there. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. All of the, the four fails of the first four verses are all resolved in the redemptive work of God here. The ignorance, that's gone. The rebellion from God, that's gone. The injustice, that's gone. It's all gone through the redemptive work of God as he seeks us out. What do a a restored people look like? Well, they're worshipers. They engage in pure speech. Our speech by nature is not pure. It's, hey, let me tell you how awesome I am speech. Let me shred other people through gossip and slander speech. Let me play the silent treatment. When I should speak, I won't speak speech. Let me stand for that which is ungodly instead of that which is godly. Let me me say stupid and foolish things. This is human speech apart from God. But when God arrests us, we become worshipers. This is why we sing, church. Not to exalt self, but to exalt God. How can someone who's been arrested by the unfailing love of God keep their mouths shut? We can't help but worship him. We're forgiven by an offended God in order that we might worship him and live in peace. And now we have the end of the passage, Psalm. There's 150 Psalms in the Psalter. But we have a psalm here, a psalm of praise, and it's a beautiful psalm, much like a good song is. It speaks of God. It identifies who God is. It tells us about God, and it gives us cause for rejoice. Again, this is a beautiful passage of the Bible. Just just listen to this. If you've never heard this before, this is a wonderful passage of the Bible. The participant, the recipient of God's redemptive grace says, sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is literal. This is not, well, I know know my lips aren't moving, but believe me, deep down inside, I'm, I'm rejoicing. No, it's open your mouth and shout praises to God. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. All through this passage, by the way, we have Phrase after phrase of the initiating love of God. It's God doing it, God doing it, God doing it, God doing it. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands grow weak. What? Just just relax. Here's what you need to know about God. You want to be relaxed. You want to rejoice. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save 
And then, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Really? God sings about me? Yeah. God worships himself by singing songs of worship to himself to celebrate the redemption that he brought about in my life apart from me. Is that not at least mildly mind-boggling, folks? Like, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like to worship. It's not my thing. God worships over you. God rejoices over you. God is singing and praising himself over you. And it is his song of praise that quiets our hearts as we bask in the reality that it's not because of me that I have access and relationship with God. But it's because of God's initiative. Check it out. I will gather. Let me emphasize the words in this passage that highlight God's initiative. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you no longer suffer reproach. And behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is God at work. Praise God for this. We're exposed to our failures. We're then reminded of the perfection of God. We're reminded of the consequences. We're like, yeah, but we're so incompetent. God's like, don't worry about it. I will redeem you by my sovereign choice, by my love and my grace. And you know what you should do? Worship me. Worship me. Sing praises to me. A person that refuses to worship God does not understand the redemptive work of God in their lives. But the person that does cannot help but to engage in unashamed adoration of God. What do we get? Check it out. The presence of God is restored. We have togetherness as a community of believers. Fortunes that were forfeited in our rebellion are regained in our restoration by the sovereign work of God. What is our conclusion then? God exposes our failure not to crush us and leave us crushed, but to humble us so that when he restores us, we cannot help but worship him and him alone. And he, it's a strange thought, but he will actually participate in the worship of himself because of the redemption that he has brought about in our lives. 
Praise God for this. Don't run then from his rebuke, but receive it. I could give you a long list, a sad list of names of Christians over the years in this church and in other churches I've been in that have sinned and been confronted in their responses, I'm out of here. They run. They don't receive the rebuke. They run. It's too hard. The teaching's too hard. The accountability's too strict. They run. We don't finger wag. And we don't preach condemnation. We preach truth for the purpose of conviction so that we might live lives that fully benefit from the redemptive work of God and praise him both now and forevermore. Don't love yourself. Love God. Throw the t-shirt out. You know the t-shirt? Just love yourself. Throw the shirt out. It's garbage. And love God. Recognize who he is and rejoice in him because he rejoices over you. Praise God for that.